He turns graves into gardens. He specializes in resurrection and making us come alive again. And I'm so glad you're here, Woodland Church. It's been an amazing weekend already. Because God is moving. And I know that he wants to move in your heart. And he has something amazing to speak to you today. And he knows your needs. I don't know what your needs are, but God does. And he's the one that can meet them. So why don't you greet someone around you and tell them you look really good today. You guys are really friendly today. That's great. Chris and I just got back from high school camp in Panama City Beach, Florida, and it was amazing. I mean, we had 16 full-size busloads of high school students and counselors that went to camp this year, and they had so much fun. They experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, and they really made friends and they learned how to stay together and face the peer pressure that this generation is facing today. But the best thing of all, 140 high school students made a faith commitment to Christ and were baptized in the ocean. It was amazing. Chris and I love to see that. And that's what it's all about. Just watch. Yeah, this generation faces so many challenges but we believe this generation is going to change the world, and we're building leaders at Woodland Church, and I'm so proud of our high school students. And by the way, Tuesday, our children leave for children's camp. There are 450 children to be going to children's camp. We want you to pray for them. We have wristbands on your way out today. We want you to put those wristbands on, and it has the name of a child who's going to camp. And would you pray for them? all week long, that God would watch over them, protect them, and do a work in their hearts. And when you wear that to work or in the neighborhood, people will ask you what it is, and you can tell them that you're praying for a child because our church is building the next generation. We're building children to face this culture and to stand for Jesus Christ. And then next Sunday, our junior high leaves for camp. It's just camp and camp and all these events and activities for students that are life-changing and also a lot of missions and ministry this summer. We sent Pastor Chance to Uvalde last week and he met with pastors and churches as Woodland Church is gonna come alongside these pastors and churches to help them is they're the ones that really are the head of the healing. They're the ones that are really there to help this community recover from such awful trauma that they've been through. You see, the relief organizations are now leaving, and that's what these good relief organizations do. They're kind of first responders that come in, but then they leave, and the churches are always there. And that's why we work through the churches. And so through our crisis care program and all of our counseling ministry, we're gonna be ministering to the churches to help them as they face an overwhelming task. There's a lot of ministries and missions going on at Woodland Church. It's already been an amazing summer of life change, and all those missions and ministries depend upon your support. And I really praise God for what he's doing through you. For you see, in the summer, we all go on vacation at times, but don't go on vacation with your giving. Stay faithful in your giving, and the great thing is you can give online. Now, 
in our church and most churches in the summer, the giving usually goes down and the ministries go way up. So go on vacation at times, but don't go on vacation in your giving because the church is doing more ministry and more missions than ever. And by the way, don't just give because the ministries and missions need that support. The number one reason you should give is because you love Jesus. That's why we give, because we love Jesus Christ. We wanna obey his commands, and he says, if you love me, you will do what I say. And he commands us to be generous. And the good thing is, we get to do that. I'm so grateful that we get to give some of what he's given us back to him to be used for his glory. It reminds me of what David said in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, as he had a generous, sacrificial heart, and he gave, and the people gave sacrificially to build the temple. And he said to God, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from your hand. So David was saying, God, thank you that I get to give. And who are we that you allow us to give back to you some of what you've given us because everything that we have comes from you. But what a blessing it is to be able to do that. And then, not only is it a blessing to be able to do that and see that you're making an eternal difference, but then he says, I'll bless you as you give. God blesses us to be a blessing, but then he blesses us more to be a greater blessing. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. God promises us blessing, his strength, his joy, his peace, his provision when we are generous. So let's bow together and pray and thank God for this opportunity to worship him through our giving. Dear God, we thank you so much for your love for us. And Lord, we're so grateful for all you're doing through Woodland Church, our ministries and missions that are making such an impact. Lord, as we're bringing the gospel of hope to the world, as we're raising up the next generation, Lord, to change the world, as we're ministering to the poor and powerless to help them, Lord Jesus, not get a handout, but a help up. And Lord, we just thank you for how you're working through the church, but most of all, Lord, we just thank you for you how you care about us so much and we matter to you and you wanna do a great work in each and every one of our hearts. And, and so we're just grateful to be able to give and we thank you that you add to it blessing and we receive that. Lord, bless everyone who gives and just do all that you want in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So our ushers are gonna come at this time and take our offering and, and by the way, probably the best way to give is to take out your smartphone and just text the word give wc it has to be together one word give wc to 77977 give wc to 77977 and i know so many of you are worshiping with us online from all over the world and you can give by just going to wc.org/give and get set up online and you can do recurrent giving online or through your smartphone and even when you're gone you're faithful in your giving, and God blesses faithfulness. You can also give stocks directly to the church, and that way you avoid the, the capital gains. There's just many ways to give, and it's not about the ways to give. It's about giving. It's about doing it because 
you love Jesus. And so we praise God for your giving. I wanna make a couple of announcements. Next weekend is Father's Day weekend, the greatest holiday of the year. Yeah, don't write me emails about that, ladies. We know it's, we know Mother's Day is a lot more important than Father's Day. We, we get that and we believe that. But at Woodland Church, we also celebrate Father's Day. So we're having a Father's Extravaganza out on the plaza with all these cool cars and, and all these fun games for the whole family and food. And it'll be between before and after every service. So don't forget that next weekend and invite friends. Um, I am so proud of Woodland's worship. Did you know Woodland's Worship's original songs are now being sung by churches all over the country? And God is using this team to make such a powerful difference. And they were at camp last week, leading the students. And now they're back here this week. And, and by the way, they're putting out a new original song every two weeks now. And so you can get it on Spotify, Apple Music, and every other platform. In fact, I wanna put up a QR code because I want you to lead as we're putting out these new songs that are going out to the world and so many churches are singing them. I want you to get them first. And so there's a QR code up here. You can just get it right now. It'll take you to some of these platforms and you can just get the new music and you'll be ready to go every two weeks as the new music is coming out. And I know that some of you guys that are my age, you know, you're just now getting it out. So I'm gonna leave it up. Because last night we took it down there, we go, oh, they just got their phone up there, you know? And so we'll leave it up. That's long enough. You guys should have gotten it by now, okay? Hey, we're so blessed today because Lee Strobel is gonna be bringing a powerful message and we're kind of teaming up today on the message. And by the way, Lee has a new movie out. You'll remember The Case for Christ that was an amazing you know, powerful movie and movie theaters and streaming, and it was the story of Lee's life, and now he's got a new movie that just came out. It's The Case for Heaven, and on July 15th, on Friday night, we're gonna show The Case for Heaven right here at Woodlands Church and kind of be the premiere before it goes to streaming. It's been out in the theaters, and now it's going to streaming on July 15th, and it's free, Friday night, we're gonna have the case for heaven right here. You can bring friends. It's a great thing to bring friends to that, that are interested in Christ but aren't quite sure. And it's just a, a powerful movie. And Lee and the director of the movie will be here for a Q&A at the end of it. So put that on your calendar. And I, we love Lee and Leslie. And, you know, they're just a big part of Woodland Church. And, you know, Lee and Leslie's hearts or just to make a difference for Jesus Christ. And so Lee's been traveling all over the country, you know, speaking and being used of God. And so would you give Lee a warm welcome back to Woodland Church? Thanks, my friend. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, I hope you show up on um, July the 15th for our screening of the film and, and invite some folks to free. So guys, it's a cheap date night. You know, just come by. But would you like to see a trailer so you know what you're getting into? Let's show a, a little trailer. Well, hope to see you on the 15th of July. 
and uh, we'll see the whole film. Well, welcome to a special weekend. We have a big celebration going on this weekend because hundreds and hundreds of people are being baptized after our services last night and after our services today. Well over 400 uh, followers of Jesus. And maybe you're a guest of one of them. Maybe they invite you to come and you're wondering, what's this all about? Or, or maybe you're kind of a, a bit of a skeptic and you wonder, does it make sense in our 21st century technological scientific age, does it still make sense to believe in the Christian message? Or maybe you're a Christian, but you, you need some reassurance that your faith in the risen Jesus is well-placed. Or maybe you're trying to reach out to someone and help them understand. Um, well, you know, I was once a skeptic myself. But today, I'm convinced that logic and reason point powerfully and persuasively toward the truth of Christianity. And I'm going to demonstrate that in the next few minutes. But first, I want to set the context for this and take you back many years to Tempe, Arizona, where a successful um, uh, engineer, mechanical engineer by the name of Chad Meister was sitting on the couch of his apartment with a loaded gun in his hand, about ready to pull the trigger. You see, Chad was an atheist, and based on his atheistic philosophy, he was convinced that the universe has no meaning. It has no real purpose. And so he's about to pull the trigger and end his life when he called out and said, God, if you're there, please show me, because I don't want to live anymore. And if you're not there, then life is not really worth living anyway. Well, with that, suddenly something amazing happened. He suddenly had a vision. Everything went dark, and all he could see in black and white was Acts 14, 22. Now, he didn't, never read the Bible before, but he looked at that, and he thought that must be some sort of verse from the Bible. So he puts down his gun. He goes out. He buys a Bible for the first time. He, he, he looks through the pages and finally finds Acts 14, 22, and he reads it. It's where Paul and Barnabas tell the disciples, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And that resonated with Chad. Because he thought back over his entire life, and he realized God had been there the whole time, pursuing him. And yet, he had repeatedly pushed him away and walked the other direction. So right then and there, he committed his life to God. And he said, God, I'm going to follow you wherever that leads. Well, fast forward to 2022. Today, Dr. Chad Meister is one of the most prominent Christian philosophers in the world. He earned his doctorate in philosophy from Marquette University. He's been a visiting scholar at Oxford University. He's a popular um, university professor, and he's written or edited more than 20 books about faith in God. Well, I got to know Chad when he was a volunteer at a church where I was a teaching pastor up in Chicago uh, quite a few years ago. And uh, so one day, I, I did a sermon, and the topic was the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And after the sermon, a guy came up to me who I didn't know and said, Lee, I'm an atheist, and uh, what you presented today really intrigued me. I thought it was interesting. He said, I'd like to pursue more. Would you be willing to get together with me sometime this week? And I said, I'd love to, but I'm actually leaving this afternoon. I'm going to be gone for two weeks. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw my friend Chad Meister. 
And I said to this atheist, wait a minute, I think my friend Chad can help you. And Chad said, yeah, I'd be glad to help you. And so Chad invited the atheist to dinner at his apartment. And as Chad was thinking through, how do I, how do I approach this conversation? Chad came up with a unique idea. He said, what if I used a pyramid as kind of an illustration? A pyramid that starts with the broadest questions about faith and then tapers to the narrowest questions and the gospel of Jesus. What if I used something like that to help this atheist understand? His goal was not absolute proof, but to show that the most reasonable understanding of the evidence is to conclude that Christianity is true. In fact, he later wrote a book about this approach. It's called Building Belief. And I interviewed Chad for my book, The Case for Heaven, from which I'm drawing from this, uh, for this talk. Well, obviously, we can't get into all the details in just one talk, but I want to build for you this basic pyramid, whether you're a Christian or whether you're a doubter, with starting with the broadest foundational issue, which is the question of truth. Truth. In John chapter 18, during his trial before Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And Pilate responded cynically. He said, what is truth? What is truth? And actually, that same question is being asked even today. It's an era where we have things like fake news, when some people say that culture determines what's true and what's not. Others say that all truth is oppressive. And then others believe that truth is relative. You know, I got my truth, you got your truth, it's all the same thing. Well, long before Pilate ever even lived, the Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, wrestled with this question of what is truth. And what has emerged, I believe, is the best definition of what truth is. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. And here's the definition. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds with reality. If I were to say we're currently in Texas, that would be true. Why? Because the Woodlands Church is situated in Texas, and so my statement corresponds with reality. But if I were to say, you know, my truth is we're currently in Vermont, that would be false. Just because I say it's my truth doesn't change reality. Frankly, this is how we live our lives every single day without even thinking about it. You know, if a member of the Flat Earth Society disagrees that the earth is round, we don't say, oh, well, you know, truth is relative. His belief that the earth is flat, that's his truth. No, we say he's flat out wrong, right? So our task needs to be to discern what is reality, what is true. But when it comes to religion, we got a problem. That problem is all major religions make truth claims that are absolute, and they fundamentally disagree with each other. They cannot all be true because they assert opposite things. For instance, Christianity says Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for sin, but other religions deny that. They cannot both be true at the same time. To say all religions are true Sounds magnanimous, but it's logically absurd. 
Therefore, our task needs to be to discover what is reality, what is really true. And that moves us to the second level of the pyramid, worldviews, worldviews. What's a worldview? A worldview is a collection of beliefs or ideas about the central issues of life. It's sort of the lens through which we view the world, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously. Well, broadly speaking, every religion in the world can be found in one of three categories. First category is atheism. Atheism says there is no God. Second category is theism. Theism says there is a God. Examples would be Christianity, Islam, Judaism. The third category is pantheism. Pantheism says everything is God. I'm God, you're God, this podium is God, everything is God. Examples would be Hinduism, Taoism, and certain New Age beliefs. So to determine which worldview reflects reality, what's most plausible, we can use two tests. First, is it logical? Is it logical? A worldview is false if its core beliefs are internally contradictory or incoherent. And then, is it livable? Is it livable? A worldview should be rejected if it cannot be consistently lived out in real life. And frankly, friends, and I say this as a former atheist, atheism fails those tests. Atheism has no credible explanation for the origin of the universe, the origin of life, or the origin of human consciousness. Many atheists say, you know, we don't really even have free will. We don't even make free choices. They're just illusions. We're merely meat machines reacting to our genetics and our environment. And yet, we don't live like that. I mean, <laughs> we don't live as if we don't really have free will and free choices. If we did live like that, you could never punish anybody for doing something wrong because they didn't make the choice to do it wrong. Not their fault. Their genetics made them do it. We can't laud someone for doing something great because they didn't make the choices to do it. It was just, they're a meat machine reacting to their genetics and the environment. We don't live like that. Besides, if atheism is true, there is no objective morality. Objective moral values are standards that are universally binding on all people at all time in all places, whether people follow those standards or not. Generally, atheists believe that morality emerged through evolution. In other words, humans invented the idea of morality because it improved their chances for survival. So morality varies from time to time and from place to place. They got their morality over here in this place. They got their morality over here in another place. Therefore, there's no such thing as objective good, objective evil, objective right, objective wrong, because there's no God to set that overarching moral standard. Even the atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. But of course, chaos would ensue if we live that way, right? Right? And that leads to a problem of logic. You see, if objective moral values exist, then atheism must be false. 
But we know that objective moral standards do exist. For instance, we know it's always wrong to torture a baby. Therefore, atheism must be false. Pantheism also has a problem with right and wrong. Pantheists believe that everything is God. Everything is one. There are no distinctions. But if there are no distinctions, then there's ultimately no distinction between right and wrong, between cruelty and kindness, between good and evil. Now, pantheists may believe that, but people don't consistently live that way. Chad told me about the time that he and his wife had a pantheist over for dinner at their apartment. And they were cooking spaghetti for dinner. And at one point, Chad took the the pot of boiling water and he held it over the head of this pantheist as if he was going to douse her with this boiling water. And he said to her, now, are you really sure that there's no distinction between right and wrong, between kindness and cruelty? And she laughed and she acknowledged, okay, well, maybe there really is a distinction. So atheism and pantheism have problems. But what about theism, the belief that there's a God? Many people say theism has a problem too. They say it's illogical to believe in a powerful and loving God because he wouldn't allow evil or suffering in the world. But that argument, friends, falls short. Why? Because it's plausible to say that if there is a God, he would give people free will. That's because the only way we can experience the greatest value in the universe, which is love, is if we have the freedom to decide to love or not to love. We need free will to be able to experience love. And what have we done? We have maliciously abused our free will and opened the door to moral evil in our world. In other words, God didn't create evil and suffering. We opened the door to it. Chad told me about the time he received a note from a woman at church who was very effective at helping others who were struggling with pain from their past. And in this letter, this woman revealed to Chad for the first time how she had herself gone through a traumatic experience when she was growing up. Well, Chad offered her an illustration. He described how he had recently baked a cake. And while preparing the cake, he decided he was going to taste every single raw ingredient individually. So baking powder, he tastes that, ugh, it's awful. Raw eggs, oh, yeah. Vanilla extract, yeah, awful. But once they were mixed together and baked, the result was a flavorful chocolate cake. And the woman got tears in her eyes because she realized what Chad was saying. She realized God didn't want these bad things to happen to her. He didn't cause them. And yet in his omniscience and omnipotence, he was able to take even bad stuff that happened and turn her into a beautiful person with a big heart for helping those who suffer. You see, sometimes it takes trials and tribulations to turn us into mature and spiritual human beings. The Bible says hardship develops character. It develops perseverance. We all know if we were to raise a child in a totally sheltered way, they wouldn't fully mature. So it's plausible that God would use our hardships to build our character. And that means there's no real contradiction in God existing 
and suffering existing if he has sufficient reason for allowing it. Well, there's a lot more we could say, but the bottom line is that although atheism and pantheism stumble over logic and livability, theism passes those tests. And that brings us to the third level of the pyramid, which is theism. What is the positive case? Is there any evidence that God exists? What's the positive case for God? And there are lots of lines of evidence that we could discuss, about 20 different lines of evidence, but I'm just going to focus quickly on two reasons we can believe that God exists. First, the origin of the universe. You know, for centuries, scientists believed that the universe was eternal. It always existed. But thanks to a series of scientific discoveries over the last 50 or 60 years concerning the expansion of the universe, today, virtually every scientist in the world believes that the universe had, had a beginning at some point in the past. In fact, even if our universe is just really a tiny part of a bigger multiverse, the multiverse itself would have needed a beginning. And that leads to a very powerful argument for the existence of God. First, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Second, we now know that the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause behind it. Well, what kind of a cause can bring a universe into existence? Well, it must be uncaused because you can't have an infinite regress of causes. Got to start somewhere, right? So it must be uncaused. must be transcendent because it exists apart from creation. It must be immaterial or spirit because it existed before the physical world came into being. He must be timeless or eternal because he existed before physical time was created. He must be powerful given the immensity of the creation event. He must be smart given the precision of the creation event. He must be personal because he had to make the decision to create. He must be caring because he so carefully crafted a habitat where we could flourish. And the scientific principle of Occam's razor said there would be just one creator. So what have we got? Uncaused, transcendent, spirit, eternal, powerful, smart, personal, caring, unique. That's a pretty good description of the God of the Bible. In fact, the Bible puts it this way in Psalm 102, verse 25. In the beginning, you, God, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The second line of evidence for the existence of, of a God is the fine-tuning of the universe. You know, one of the striking discoveries of modern physics has been that the numbers that govern the operation of the universe conspire in an unexpected and extraordinary way to make the universe habitable for life. In other words, the universe is finely tuned on a razor's edge in a way that defies mere chance and which is better explained as the work of a creator. It's like this. Imagine you go outside on a, on a dark summer night and there's no clouds in the sky and you look up expecting to see a bunch of stars, but instead you see a hundred giant dials in the sky. Giant And those dials, each one of them could be set to any one of trillions or trillions of settings. And yet every one of these hundred 
dials is perfectly calibrated so that life can exist. Friends, that is the picture that modern physics has given us. Give you an example, the force of gravity. We all know what the force of gravity is, right? If you drop something, it, it, it falls, right? Well, the force of gravity is calibrated so perfectly so that life can exist. How perfectly? Imagine a ruler that goes across the entire universe, 15 billion light years across the entire universe, broken down into one-inch increments. That represents the range along which the force of gravity could have been set along anywhere on that ruler, and yet it happens to be set at the exact right place so that life can exist. How perfectly calibrated is it? If you were to change the force of gravity one inch compared to the 15 billion light year width of the universe, intelligent life would be impossible anywhere in the universe. And that's just one of about 100 different parameters that physics tells us are finely tuned. The odds against this happening by mere chance are so astronomically remote that one scientist told me, he said, Lee, we physicists have a scientific term for odds like that. I said, what is it? He said, ain't gonna happen. Ain't gonna happen. Dr. Vera Kistiakowski, who's professor of physics at MIT, former president of the Association of Women in Science, put it this way. She said, the exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. In other words, when you see the mind-boggling fine-tuning of the universe, it compels us to conclude that God exists. So the evidence from science supports theism. And that leads us to the next level of the pyramid, which is revelation. Revelation. You see, every major religion believes that its scriptures are authoritative. Of course, Christians see no conflict with, uh, between their Bible and the Jewish scriptures that are contained in our Old Testament because we as Christians regard our faith as being the fulfillment of Judaism. But there are irreconcilable differences between the Bible and every other sacred text. For example, the Quran of Islam explicitly contradicts the Bible's teaching about the Trinity, about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the teaching that Jesus is God's unique son. So if it's plausible to believe that the Bible is reliable, it would automatically rule out the Quran as being reliable. So let's look at the reliability of the Bible. I'll focus on the New Testament because it has the starkest contrast with Jewish and Islamic beliefs. Chad proposed three tests for determining whether it's reasonable to, to, reasonable to believe that the New Testament is reliable. First, the bibliographical test. This refers to whether we can trust the transmission of the text through history. And it is no exaggeration to say that the evidence for the text of the New Testament is absolutely staggering. It is far, far greater than any other ancient document. We have more than 5,800 ancient Greek manuscripts and fragments, with some fragments dating as early as just a few decades from the original. Yes, there are some differences 
between these handwritten copies, but 80% of those differences are mining, minor uh, spelling variances that can't even be translated into English. They're so minor. In some manuscripts, John is spelled with two N's. In some, is spelled with one N. But the point is, it's never spelled Mary, right? Okay. So the key thing is not one cardinal doctrine of the church is threatened by any differences between these documents, these manuscripts. Second, there's the internal test for determining the reliability of the Bible. Several New Testament documents refer to their authors being eyewitnesses or mentioning eyewitnesses or interviewing eyewitnesses. For instance, Luke's gospel talks about eyewitnesses and notes that Luke carefully investigated everything from the beginning so he could write about the certainty of what took place. Peter said, if we did not follow cleverly devised tales, we didn't make, uh, you know, follow fairy tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We saw these things. We experienced them. We were there. John said he was writing about, quote, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Peter and John both told the Jewish authorities, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Paul stresses that there were 500 eyewitnesses at one time to the risen Jesus Christ. In a sense, even challenged doubters are still alive. Go talk to them yourself. Go talk to these eyewitnesses. They're still around. They'll tell you what happened. Friends, no other religious text can make claims like that. For example, when the Quran talks about Jesus, it's not using first century sources like the Bible does. It's not using uh, eyewitness-based testimony like the Bible does. Instead, it's based on what Muhammad was told 600 years after the fact. Third, there's the external evidence for the Bible, which looks at whether outside sources corroborate what the Bible says. Over and over again, archaeological discoveries have confirmed and never disproven New Testament references. Plus, there are numerous ancient writings outside the Bible that corroborate the basic outline of the life of Jesus. In fact, the historian Gary Habermas has identified 39 ancient sources from which he enumerates more than 100 facts about the life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Again, no other religious text comes close to those historical credentials. That's what impressed a friend of mine by the name of J. Warner Wallace. J. Warner Wallace was a cold case homicide investigator out in California. He solved so many old murders that he became a regular on Dateline. You know Dateline, where they talk about these old murders that get solved? He appears on Dateline so often talking about all these old cases that he solves that they have a, a term for him. They call him the evidence whisperer. Well, Jim Wallace was an atheist until he used his monumental detective skills to delve into the reliability of the Bible. And he not only, as a result, became a Christian, but today he's one of the most prominent defenders of the Christian faith in the world. In fact, I love the title of his book, Cold Case Christianity. I think that's a great title. And that brings us to the last category of evidence, the resurrection of Jesus. 
This is the ultimate authentication of the claim of Jesus that he is the unique son of God. Why? Because anybody can claim that they're God. But if Jesus claimed that he was the son of God, died, and then three days later returned from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? So we can summarize quickly the evidence for the resurrection using three facts. First, Jesus was truly dead after being crucified. He was truly dead. Not only do we have multiple sources for this in the documents of the New Testament, we've got five ancient sources outside the Bible talking about his death. In fact, no less of a source than the Journal of the American Medical Association, a secular, peer-reviewed, scientific medical journal carried an investigation into the death of Jesus, and this was their conclusion, quote, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Second fact, Jesus' tomb was discovered empty. This is reported in the first gospel that was written, the gospel of Mark, that comes far too quickly to be the result of um, legendary development which took place over time in the ancient world. In fact, all four gospels report the tomb was empty. In fact, get this, even the enemies of Jesus admitted that the tomb was empty. Everybody admitted it in the first century. The third line of evidence are eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. All four Gospels report that the disciples encountered the risen Christ. Peter and Paul both personally affirm that they were eyewitnesses. In fact, much of what we accept as being true from the ancient world is based on one or two sources of information. And yet, for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. But the most persuasive evidence comes in the form of an eyewitness-based creed of the first century church, which reports that Jesus appeared to numerous named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses. And scholars, get this, scholars say we can be entirely confident that this eyewitness report can be dated back to within months of the death of Jesus. That's far too quick to write it off as being a legend that would have taken a long time to develop. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is not a legend. It's not mythology, it's not make-believe, it's not wishful thinking. It is based on a convincing case of historical data. And that, to me, makes it entirely reasonable to conclude that Jesus really is the Son of God who he claimed to be. So I believe this pyramid makes a clear and convincing case that the Christian message can be trusted like no other. And so what's our logical response? That brings us to the peak of the pyramid, the gospel itself. What is the gospel? Well, you know, the Bible is about 800,000 words, and yet we can summarize the gospel in one verse. 21 words, Romans 6.23, that says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
In other words, the wages of sin, what we've earned, what we deserve, what the, the, the logical consequences of our sin, the way we've ignored God's um, way of living and ignored his commandments and violated them, the consequences of that are death, which is eternal separation from God forever. Friends, that's what hell is. But the Bible says the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. In other words, he went to the cross, he paid the penalty we deserve for the sins that we've committed, and he offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his grace. Why? Because he loves you, because he created you, because he wants to spend eternity with you. So let me finish my story about Chad. As I said, he first drew this pyramid for an atheist that came over to his apartment to talk about faith. At 7 p.m., they had dinner together. And then they spent several hours going through this pyramid. And by 2 a.m., the atheist had become a believer. So how about you? How about you? You know, we're baptizing hundreds of followers of Jesus Christ this weekend who've received this free gift. For me, having been an atheist for much of my life, trained in journalism and law, the most logical, the most rational thing I ever did in my life was to respond to the evidence for the truth of Christianity and open my life to this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. One of the easiest decisions I ever made. Why? Because I spent two years of my life investigating the evidence, and I came to the conclusion that it's true. Have you done that? Have you received this free gift? It's the most logical, the most rational step that you can take. And I'll tell you what, not only that, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now if you want to take that step. And this is baptism weekend. If you want to be baptized right after this service, you know, the Bible has that pattern, believe and be baptized. You want to be baptized today? We've got all kinds of shorts and and T-shirts and towels and everything you need if you want to be baptized right after this. We had a bunch of people last night spontaneously had received Christ and were baptized last night. You can do that today. And you can be assured that you will spend eternity with God in heaven. So let me offer you an opportunity. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. Just in your heart, God will hear you. Just in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the son of God. You proved it by returning from the dead. And right now, I confess the obvious which is that I'm a sinner. I know that. I've done things I knew they were wrong before I did them, and I did them anyway. I've sinned. And I confess that, and right now I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive. I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased on the cross for me. Help me, Jesus, to live the kind of life that you want me to live 
Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that whenever a sinner repents from their sin, receives forgiveness through your son, that a party breaks out in heaven. So we celebrate with heaven right now, those that have taken that step. We look forward to their baptism. And we're grateful that we live in a place where we can proclaim this message with freedom knowing that as your gospel goes out, people recognize the truth of it and respond by receiving this free gift of your grace. Thank you for loving us that much. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thank you, Lee. What a clear, powerful, and compelling message to the fact that Jesus loves you so much that he came and died, rose again, so that he could make all the difference in your life. If you prayed that prayer, that's the greatest decision you could ever make. And the next step after you make a faith commitment to Christ is baptism. You see, baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but it shows that you are one. It's your public profession that Christ is in your life and you want to obey him, and obedience brings blessing. And Jesus set the example for us. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized there by John. John didn't want to do it. This isn't proper, he said. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. But Jesus said, Please do it, for I must do all that is right. So then John baptized him, And after his baptism, as soon as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, and I am wonderfully pleased with him. So Jesus, the perfect son of God, comes to John the Baptist and says, I want you to baptize me. And John says, what? I mean, you're the one who needs to baptize me. You're the son of God. And Jesus said, no, I want you to baptize me because I want to follow what my father tells me to do. I want to obey, and obedience brings blessing. I want to set an example for all of my followers, for everyone who follows me to come. For you see, Jesus set the example, and baptism is our public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You commit your life to Christ, and then you're to be baptized as that next step to show to everyone that you love Jesus, that you want everyone to know that you love Jesus. You see, in the New Testament, it was always a public celebration. It was always a public baptism because it's your public profession of faith, and that's the way we do it today. It's a public celebration, and we celebrate with the angels in heaven. As Lee said, we celebrate with cupcakes and lemonade and ice cream and It's just a big celebration because the angels are celebrating in heaven, but it's always public because it's your public profession of faith in Christ. Now, in the New Testament, once you made a faith commitment to Christ, everything was cool. But then once you were baptized as your public profession to say, I'm a Christian, I want everyone to know, I don't care what happens, I love Jesus Christ, then the religious leaders, the government officials would then put your name down and you'd be persecuted, imprisoned, or killed. And it means the same thing today, exactly the same thing. 
In fact, in many parts of the world, in communist countries and many Muslim countries, it's against the law to be baptized. And once you are in that public ceremony, then you're persecuted, imprisoned, and sometimes killed. In fact, there are more martyrs for the Christian faith than at any other time in history today. We just don't think about it in America because we have freedom of worship. But it means the same thing, that we're standing with our brothers and sisters all over the world saying, I love Jesus Christ, I want everyone to know. I may feel uncomfortable going into the water. I may kind of wonder what people are thinking about me. It, it, it may feel a little different, and, but I don't care. I want everyone to know I love Jesus. So I stand with you, brothers and sisters today all over the world who are being baptized and you're gonna be persecuted because you want everyone to know that you love Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, if people are ashamed of me and my teaching, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes with his Father's glory and with the holy angels. So Jesus is saying, if you're ashamed of me down here, I'll be ashamed of you when I return. And so when we're baptized, we're saying, Jesus, I'm not ashamed of you. I want everyone to know that I love you with all my heart. And I'm not ashamed of you, and I don't want you to be ashamed of me. I want everyone to know that I love Jesus Christ. I'm publicly professing my faith in Christ. And that obedience to God brings great blessing. Well, because today is our super summer baptism, and right after this service, I know hundreds of you are going to be baptized, and so I wanted to answer some frequently asked questions about baptism. And then this will also remind those of you who have been baptized how powerful your baptism was. So the first question is, when should I be baptized? Well, the Bible says after you make a faith commitment to Christ. Because it's a public profession of your faith, it's always after you receive Christ into your life. Now, I know that many of you were sprinkled or baptized as babies. And when you were, your parents stood before the church and they made a great commitment that day. They said, by God's grace, we're gonna do everything we can to help our child fall in love with Christ and raise them in Christ. But you didn't know what was happening. You just got your head wet and you cried and you had no idea what was going on. And once you're old enough to make your own personal profession of faith in Christ, once you're old enough to receive Christ into your life, then you're to be baptized to show that it's your decision now. This is your baptism now. And that's a biblical baptism. And I'll tell you, is powerful. That obedience, it brings so much blessing from the Lord God. Now, we baptize families together. If your children are old enough to understand what they're doing to place their faith in Christ, then we'll baptize whole families together. Um, I baptized families of five, six, 10, 14 one time. Aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews went into the water together. We love to baptize families together. We baptize married couples together because what a powerful statement to say, we're gonna build our marriage on Jesus Christ. We baptize engaged couples together because we say, what a powerful example that is to say, we're gonna build this marriage from the beginning on Jesus Christ. We baptize single adults who say, I want everyone to know I love Jesus. I'm gonna go his way. I'm gonna go against culture. I'm going his way. And so it's gonna be a powerful time right after this service, in this baptism. Now, we at Woodland Church 
we dedicate babies. And it's a really moving and powerful service. We have it in the chapel, you know, every few months where parents stand up in front before God and they make these commitments. And, and it's almost like a wedding ceremony. We say, by God's grace, do you promise to pray for your child daily? And we do. By God's grace, do you promise to be a model for your child that they can follow as an example to Christ? We do. And so the parents are making this great commitment. We pray a powerful prayer over each child that they would, God would protect them and bless them and strengthen them and, and guide them to know him at an early age. And, but it's really more for the parents than it is for the children because once those babies grow up and they're old enough to make their own personal faith commitment to Christ, then they're to be baptized. After that is a public profession of their faith. It's their baptism. And so I know many of you were sprinkled or baptized as babies, and I just challenge you biblically to get rebaptized today. You know, that, that's what the Bible says, and that obedience to God's word brings so much blessing. I have rebaptized thousands of people who are sprinkled as babies, and I've never had one come out of the water and say to me, Pastor Kerry, my first baptism was so much more meaningful. I was six months old, and I will never forget it. But I have them come out of the water all the time saying, wow, why was this so powerful? It's because obedience brings blessing. You're following God's word. And at Woodland Church, we just want to stay as close to God's word as we can. Well, the next question is, how should I be baptized? Should I be sprinkled or thrown into the water or a bucket of cold water dumped on my head or sprayed in the face with a hose? How should I be baptized? By immersion, the Bible says, by being completely dipped under the water. Why? Because Jesus was baptized that way. It says in that passage, when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit of God came on him. When he came up out of the water, so he sets our example. And every baptism in the New Testament was by immersion, the person being dipped completely under the water. The word baptize is a transliterated word from the word, the Greek word baptizo. That's where it comes from. And it literally means to be immersed or dipped completely underwater. Well, then you say, Carrie, how did sprinkling ever start? Well, in the dark ages, in some places, they lacked water, so they started doing it out of convenience. But the real reason it started was because in the dark ages, they twisted a doctrine of Scripture. There's a doctrine of Scripture that is true. It's called original sin. And that is everyone is born with this bent towards sinning and wanting our own way. That's why you have to teach a child how to share they already know how to be selfish. You gotta teach them how to share. You know, I have a granddaughter who um, is great at teaching others how to share. Give me that toy, share, learn how to share. You know, she'll teach others. She's great at teaching you how to share. And, but we have this bent towards sinning. That's original sin, and it's true, but then they took it and twisted it and said there's original guilt, and if a baby dies before they have a chance to be baptized, then they'll go to hell and spend eternity apart from God because they're guilty, and so we better baptize them. And they started baptizing babies, and the only way, you know, baptism is in the Bible is immersion, and so some of the babies drowned, so they said, well, we need to sprinkle them. And that's really how sprinkling started. And we know in context of all Scripture and the God that we serve that if a child dies before they're old enough to even understand how to place their faith in Christ, they'll go directly to heaven. I believe that with all my heart. I mean, what a twist of scripture. 
but that's how it started. And I know some churches maybe don't quite think of it that way, but that's really the whole purpose for it. It's like, we got to save these babies before they die. Makes no sense. And so at Woodlands Church, we want to be as biblically true as possible. And so that's why we baptize by immersion. Another reason is because it best emphasizes Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In Colossians 2.12, it says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so baptism is this beautiful picture that Christ died, was buried, he rose again, and he's alive in your life. In fact, when you're baptized, all of you hundreds will be baptized today, basically you're preaching a message without saying a word that Christ died, was buried, rose again, and he's alive in your life today through his Holy Spirit. It's a powerful message. Now, I wanna kind of take you through what it is, kind of alleviate some of the mystery of baptism. Right after this service, what we want you to do for all those who are being baptized and feeling God's tug on your heart to be baptized, you go right out to the changing rooms, and they're right out there. We have men's and women's dressing rooms and partitioned off, and you know we want you to go out to the dressing rooms. We've got everything you need. We have shorts, of dark shorts of every size. We have T-shirts of every size. We have makeup, ladies. We have blow dryers, everything you need after your hair gets wet. We got everything out there. And then once you come out from the dressing rooms, you go out to the Cross Fountain Baptistry Pool. If you're here at the Wilderness Campus, it's right out here in the center of the campus. And at Atascacita, it's right out front. And you'll come out there and we'll get you in line. And, and then you'll come into the pool when it's your turn. And I or one of our pastors will will bring you into the pool, lead you in the pool, and it feels really good today. Really good. Some of you just want to be baptized because you're hot. No, that's not a good reason, but anyway. And so you come into the pool, and I will lead you into the pool or one of our pastors, and then I'll ask, do you want to hold your nose? And if you do, then I just raise your hands and put them together. And if you get confused about it, I just say, hey, just put your hands together like this. And then... When it's time to baptize, I will raise your hands up. You hold your nose, and then I lower you under the water. And then we have two to three do original worship songs. And then we raise you back up. If you're alive, you remember. You, you know, you survived the baptism. No, there's only certain people I hold down longer if they need it. No. I remember... This one guy in our church said, I want to be baptized with everyone else, but he was huge, like six foot six, you know, 300 pounds. And I, I said, hey, no big deal. You know, I've only lost three people in 20 years. And that was a joke, but he didn't laugh about it, you know. And so I baptize people of all sizes. I promise you, all sizes. And he came down into the water, and the water was up to about here on him and about here on me. And so... I said, hey, just bend your knees and help me out, you know, and he did, and he was alive, he was so happy, he was so thrilled, and he gave me a big hug and said, so powerful, and, and so really, there, there's no excuse. I know so many of you came ready to be baptized, and so many of you came not even knowing about the baptism, but now God has put it on your heart, and you're going to be baptized today, and it's going to change your life forever. Obedience brings blessing. I want you to watch this story from a couple in our church 
who were recently baptized and how Christ has changed their life. Just watch as BJ and Jessica share their story with you. It's his grace. It's all about his grace, his saving grace. You can be seated. I mean, nothing gets better than those baptisms. That's what it's all about, life change. And I want to read to you Acts 2.41. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Those who accepted Christ were baptized that day. They were baptized right away, and 3,000 on that day of Pentecost. And then in Acts 22.16, God says this to Saul right after his conversion. He says, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. He says, what are you waiting for? And that's what I want to say to you today. God says, what are you waiting for? For those of you who came and weren't even thinking about baptism, but now the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart that this is your time. There are a hundred good things you could do right after this service that maybe you've already planned to do, but there's only one God thing you can do that's gonna change your life. And I'm telling you, we've got everything for you. We got this baptism box for everybody and it's got shirts of every size, um, we have dark shorts of every size. We have blow dryers, which I never need. Brushes, which I never need. We've even got sunglasses and sunscreen and we got everything. So there's no excuses. When God speaks to your heart, you take that one step of faith. And I'm telling you, it's just one step. It's not a hundred steps. It's like Lee said, it's one step of faith based on the facts, but when you take that one step, he takes you the rest of the way through his grace. And I'm gonna ask you in just a moment to take that one step and really it's just standing up to say Jesus is in my life. I want everyone to know. And when you stand up, he'll take you out here to the dressing rooms. He'll do that. He'll take you into the baptistry waters and your life will never be the same. And when God calls you to take a step of obedience and you take that step, you go to the next level. But when you take a step back in fear, you get stuck. This is your day. And you can join the hundreds that are gonna be baptized. We're gonna be out there, we're gonna be celebrating. It's gonna be amazing. And so I wanna pray right now for us. Dear God, I thank you that life changes what it's all about. You're the only one that can change a life. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for how you right now have changed so many lives. And we just ask you, Lord, to give everyone strength to take that one step, just to obey you, because obedience brings blessing. And Lord, I know there'll be a hundred distractions of thoughts in their minds about, oh, gotta go to lunch, gotta do this, gotta do that, but Lord, none of those things are gonna change their life, like obeying you, to show that you're in their life that you died, were buried, and rose again. So we thank you that the angels in heaven are rejoicing and partying, and we're gonna have a celebration in just a few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, church. Thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. 
For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.